to another edition of the Love You Later by podcast. Today is May 27th. We are rounding the corner and heading toward the end of the the month, to be sure. Uh, I'm sure no one probably noticed it, but I was talking last uh, episode at doing a weekend edition, and that weekend blew right by me, and I never got it done. So, as uh, just from a practical standpoint, I think we are, we are going to settle into a weekly edition, uh, and I will continue to talk about some of the things that have been a part of some of the life lessons that I am going to be talking about, and then we will um, transition to spend a little time talking about uh, silence and the role that it plays in our development, but also even the role it plays in dealing with loss in our lives, since that's kind of the primary focus of of a podcast like this and the importance of it at least in my mind um so i you know one of the things i was thinking about today i over the last couple of days summer is usually a time to catch up on uh looking watching some movies that i never get to see and never take the time to watch and and over the weekend uh my family and i actually watched uh, the movie In the Heart of the Sea, which is actually the story that inspired uh, Herman Melville in uh, Moby Dick, writing Moby Dick. And uh, uh, Chris Hemsworth is in it, and a very young version of Tom Holland is in it. And uh, it's it's a really pretty good movie. I, I am always fascinated by watching backstories of the things like this. And and as the story goes, and I don't want to do a, uh, uh, you know, a um, spoiler for anybody, but as the story goes, I'll be careful, I promise. Uh, the, the Melville shows up at a man's door and begins to interview him about a particular incident uh, involving a, uh, an, an American ship uh, that uh, sinks and all the circumstances around that and uh, the one thing I can tell you is that, that there was a sighting of a white whale, and I, that's as far as I will go. This particular man is in; he looks like he's in his late sixties, early seventies, uh, and uh, is telling the story for the very first time. He's been spending most of his life medicating it through alcohol and uh, reclusiveness, and and all the things that are related to it. He has a very devoted wife. And uh, Melville shows up at his door and, and offers to pay him for, for rent for three uh, days if he would just simply tell his story of this particular ship, whaling ship. The thing that stood out to me about this is, for one thing, how, how much uh, this guy's character is like us, like me, is our tendency, or my tendency certainly is, is that when I do things that are in my mind, um, uh, he, he, the word he uses is abominations. And, and when you finally watch the story, you would actually see why he called it that. But all the things that I, I can do that will separate me from other people or lower my estimation, their estimation of me in their eyes, is things that stand as a threat for how I handle myself and the stories there is to tell about what's part of my life and what has shaped me and uh, all of that. So one of the, the things that I have talked about previously on, on a previous podcast is, that, is the assertion that I make is that control and trust can't coexist. And in this man's uh, world, 
he had spent all of his life controlling the effects of of the the memories he had of the incident and of the ordeal that he went through that would that would uh, crush most people and at the end of the story he finally gets to the end of the story and Herman Melville is just looking completely shell-shocked at all the things that he has just heard and written down and and the man says uh, well Melville asks him have you told this to your wife and he said my wife wouldn't love me if she knew all the abominations that I've been a part of well little did he know that his wife was standing in the background and came out and said I would still put that ring on my finger by the man that I knew you to be and and in response to all of that because this man was fighting the entire time telling his story he he really really didn't want to do it and and Melville made an interesting comment which really caught my attention and fits into some of the things that, we're, that I want to talk about tonight and he says this he says the devil loves unspoken secrets especially those in a man's soul we earnestly believe and I'll I will just use the who I can speak of and that is me I earnestly believe that the things that I hide are so grievous so condemning that it's better for me to bury them in my soul, which I would refer you back to the very first, <coughs> excuse me, the first or second episode where I was talking about Love's Canal. I would rather bury them in my soul and hide them and be toxified and poisoned by them than bring them out and find freedom in the light of day. Now, what, is this, what does this have to do with the su- subject? Where we left off, was we were talking about perfectionism and shame. And the, the challenge that I started out with is to pursue excellence and reject perfectionism. And one of the questions that has to be asked is, is if perfectionism and shame are such painful things to engage in, why do we do it? I mean, after all, most, most people, most psychologists would agree that we are pain of avoidant beings we we will avoid pain at all costs now if i can't avoid it i might find a way to medicate it or divert my attention away from it or deflect it or do any number of other things that are distorting or whatever but why do we do it and i think the overarching reason we do these these things the perfectionism and the severe ruthless excuse me, the, the, the severe and kind of ruthless estimations and evaluations that we make of ourselves is really an effort to maintain our standing in somebody else's eyes, which, by the way, we really don't ask. And even if we asked and they said what they believe to be true about us, we wouldn't believe anyway. So why do we do it? And there are a variety of things. Probably the first and foremost of those is how do I go about avoiding rejection? If I pursue perfection, nothing short of perfection, then the chances of me being rejected are that much less. Now, does it work? Well, in my mind, it might. 
But the cost that I pay for that is insurmountable. It is monumental, the cost I pay in managing and um, remaining vigilant of people's perceptions and approval and, and um, notions about me. And the worst thing about it is, is that it really isn't their perceptions and notions about me, right? I mean, I, I, it's not like I go around with the people that I'm most concerned about and take a poll and say, so how do you see me? How do you, what do you think of me? We rarely will ever do that. And of course, like I said, it's kind of a double bind for most people that we ask that question because if they're really kind and appreciative and and balance our flaws with all the things that are um, impactful and profound in our relationship with them, we'd say, oh, you're just being nice. But then if they say something really negative or they say something that highlights a flaw that we condemn, we're saying, yep, it's about time they told me the truth. See, we're, we're stuck in the horns of a dilemma when we're trying to avoid rejection. The second thing it accomplishes for us is it allows us to avoid exposure because our assumption is, is that if I am exposed, I will be condemned. So therefore, if I put on the right appearance and I put on the right kind of clothing, if you will, of performance and, and uh, handling myself and poise and confidence and all these other things, then they won't, they will only know a portion of me, the portion that I shape, I manage, I handle. One of the things that I often will refer to is that if anybody out there is familiar with the Harry Potter series, they're also familiar with, with the the villain or the antagonist in that series. Uh, He who should not be named, otherwise known as Lord Voldemort and how did he how did he manage to keep his power well he fractured his soul and gave only portions of it out to various places and people and by doing so it's only when they all come together that he is completely vulnerable it's funny we operate that way too we only give a portion of ourselves because if that's the portion the person has, then I'm safe. So I avoid exposure. And the other thing I avoid on top of that, which is the third thing, is disconnection. Is that I, I have already created the frame in my mind that if you knew me the way I know me, you wouldn't like me either. And it, it would go even farther than that and that you would abandon me you would leave me. And it may not be physically leave me, but you will emotionally leave me. So by my efforts to uh, beat myself up with shame and condemn myself as a person, which is what shame is all about. It has not, it, it's nothing about performance. It's always about the person. But if I do that ahead of time and get all of that uh, uh, kind of toxic stuff moving in my direction, then my behavior will shape up. I will look the way I'm supposed to look and I won't, I won't lose people. I won't be exposed to vulnerability, which I like to talk about as a, a positive characteristic, but I don't live and I will avoid being rejected. And see, the whole thing, which I just said a minute ago, is that it's us despising ourselves before we assume other people will. 
and and we may not ever articulate that. I am I'm I'm here to tell you we probably don't articulate it. In most cases, when I start talking about this stuff, somebody will you know be very very quiet because why? Because I am actually bringing out in the light by talking about it the very thing that they have spent all of their time hiding behind the stained glass that they have created for people to see. And the thing to keep in mind, something that, and again, I, I, I refer back to Brene Brown all the time, and the one thing she says, which fits right into some of the things that I like to talk about with the stained glass self, is that shame grows in darkness. And stained glass, without the sun shining on it, what's behind that stained glass is darkness and it's it's dim and shame grows there all the worst fears all the worst condemnations all of those things are what really grows there on the flip side the thing that we're trying to assure is our acceptance and our approval but let me refer you back and if you have to wind back the 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 audio a little ways you'll hear me talk about this is that I, I'm trying to assure acceptance and approval from people but but I've already been my judge jury and executioner my my sentence has already been nailed down it's already been it's already been rendered so even though people will accept me and offer acceptance to me I don't accept me and I don't accept me becomes a barrier and a, an obstacle for me to grasp and accept the, the acceptance and approval that people offer me offer me so as I said at the very beginning and I quoted Brene Brown um, in the last podcast when she said when perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun, and I added, and fear is always in the back seat. And that's what we're talking about here, is what is in the background is driving us by fear, and that fear drives us to control other people's perceptions of us. And, and to a person, if, if I stand outside of any arena or any uh, uh, large gathering place which we don't have anymore because nobody can go there but if I stand outside and start polling people to come out and say so tell me can you control somebody else to a person to a person they will probably say no I can't and yet we spend a good portion of our time in relationships because we don't identify what that controlling behavior looks like, <clears throat> but we spend a good portion of our time and thoughts and efforts controlling the other person's response to us. What is remarkable, I think, is that when we find somebody who, who will resist being controlled and accept us anyway, and then I'm in a real bind because I they're offering me something that I can't stop them from doing and it doesn't match my my vision or my understanding even of myself and so I have often said to people in counseling and sitting with them is that I'm not sure I honestly I am not sure well yeah I am sure but that's kind of a hyperbole 
But I'm not sure which is worse for us, rejection or acceptance. Because after all, rejection fits right in with the narrative that a lot of us have going. I don't know that it's everybody, but I I think at various points in time, it probably is everybody. But if somebody says, enough, I'm done, I'm tapped out, I can't go any farther, you're on your own. I would probably end up saying, yeah, I probably deserve that. And say that rejection is, is something that fits me. On the other hand, I do something like that and somebody says, ouch, that hurt first. And we need to talk about this. And, but I still accept you as you are. I think that's probably more dangerous. I think is a lot more dangerous as a matter of fact. And that's why, at least in the, over the course of many, many years of talking to people, acceptance is probably far more dangerous than rejection. Because acceptance oftentimes can't be controlled. Which leads us into a bigger picture of talking about our relationship with Jesus and what he offers us and why that is so compelling. Because he won't be controlled by us. He won't even be controlled by our bad behavior. He will accept us as we are, as I've been known to say, and quoting my friend Brennan Manning, he will he accepts us as we are, not as we should be, because we're never going to be what we should be. Now, let me let me just clarify and explain that. Because acceptance is not the condoning of a condition and saying, you don't have to change, nothing changes here, um, and, and that's okay. You can just stay where you're at. That is not what I'm talking about. But I think in a lot of cases, what I have seen in a lot of Christians is that, as strange as it may sound to hear me say this, I think Jesus is far more accepting of your humanity because he came to die for it than you are. And he offers grace to allow us to move beyond that and to become people who become over the course of our life and our journey with him more and more like him the second part of that statement god loves us as we are i i inserted the word acceptance but god loves us as we are not as we should be that statement is not an aspirational one it is a condemnation one What I should be is always in reference to someone else or some other standard. And I'm not talking about a moral standard. There's lots of shoulds in our world that are moral standards. I should tell the truth. I should enter into relationships with people. It's good for me. But there are thousands and thousands of more shoulds in my in my little internal universe that have nothing to do with morality they have everything to do with my acceptability in a lot of cases so we are driven by fear and that fear drives us to control other people's perceptions of us and that's one of the keys i think behind living freely in terms of pursuing excellence and rejecting perfection. Now, there are a few characteristics that I want to point out. I think given where I am in time, I probably will continue this into next week. But a a fellow uh, 
therapist that I uh, had the opportunity to be on the radio with, Dr. David Stoop, wrote a book called Hope for the Perfectionist. And these things, these characteristics are things that I'm borrowing from his material just to highlight my idea, my, my uh, further comments here. So we're not going to be able to get through all of them, but I want to take the time to do that. And um, the, the first one uh, is, is the idea of perfectionism is idealistic. In other words, it talks about the way things should be. And excellence, on the other hand, is realistic. It deals with and lives with things as they are. And if I were to highlight one above all others when it comes to talking about perfectionism versus excellence, it's this, because that should that I was talking to you about earlier is all about being compared to an ideal that we know we will never live up to. And so perfectionism is about the way things should be. There it is idealistic and I would add demanding demanding without any wiggle room for flaw or um, imperfections at all. Excellence, on the other hand, is realistic. It lives with things the way they actually are. And the, the one thing I will leave you with to finish this point out is that when we talk about living with things the way they are does not mean that I'm condoning things the way they are. But I can't change what I won't accept. I can't change what I will not label at all. I think I mentioned this in another podcast, but, but a TED Talk I often show my students is a, is a woman by the name of Rebecca Payton. And she makes probably the most powerful statement in the TED Talk in the first, I don't know, five minutes or so. When she says, I disempower that which I name. And the fundamental core of vulnerability is naming things as they are and how they are within my soul. And that brings us back to the ending point of where I started when Melville looks at Tom Nickerson, who is the character, and says, the devil loves unspoken secrets, particularly those that are buried in men's souls. And that's where freedom lies. It's very counterintuitive. I understand that completely. It seems like I am setting myself up for greater rejection. And yet I have seen all too often that when I take the risk of being known as I am, not only do I find freedom, but I also invite other people into that same freedom. Well, thank you for joining me again. I'm we're going to go in uh, drop into a weekly rhythm. Couple items just to remind you of: be sure and visit the drmitch.com website. There are all the previous podcasts that are there. Uh, they, before too long, if I get ambitious enough and able to to squeak out uh, uh, some uh, uh, corner of time, I will get it listed in iTunes as well. Uh, and I will certainly be sure to let you know when I do that. Uh, secondly, if, if you know of anybody or would love to partner with us to, to pay it forward in terms of, of a silent retreat for a CCU student, please be sure and hit the website and also click on the CCU link at the top of the page and go down to silent retreats and you can, 
You can contribute anything. Anything will help um, in terms of uh, allowing a student to participate in a silent retreat during their years at CCU. That's it for now. As always, love you. Later. Later.